page. There's our mind goes a lot of different directions because we find ourselves at different places. There's different stages of life from a child to a youth to a mother, father, and older. And we have all different stages of life. And I think God has us at different places. He wants us passionate to serve God where you are at and seek his will to where he would want you to be. I remember uh, having some of those world-famous speakers come into charity and challenging us to spend or using examples of people who spend two or three hours a day alone with God. What a goal. What a, I mean, not a goal. What a, that's great. And then Aaron Hurst getting up and say, start with half an hour if you aren't doing it yet. That there's, sometimes there's a, there has to be, not everybody is at the same place, let's say it that way. Not everybody is going to be going and doing exactly the same things. But when it comes to be passionate for the things of God, let's do it. Where God has us. So I appreciate that first message. We, um, I see Eldon isn't here this morning. I want to make a comment on a message that he had a couple months ago. Eldon had proposed a position that rocked a few of us. I know there was some comment afterwards when he had about the Bible, and he said something to this effect that archaeology does not confirm the scripture. Does anybody remember what he said or exactly what he said? you remember that and how it got some discussion going? He said that, right. Yeah, something like that. Archaeology does not confirm the scripture. And that took me for a little bit of thinking. And that took some other people for that thinking, too. I could hear that. But I found something, a quote from A.W. Pink that speaks on the issue that I, that clarified my mind. And I thought I'd like to share it this morning. I see Eldon is not here. He is dealing in this quote, he is dealing with the first several chapters of Genesis. So you have to understand the context, understand. <clears throat> Here's a quote. Don't write it down. It's a long one, but uh, I can have it on, would have it uh, if you want it later. He says, we have little patience with those who labor to show that the teachings of this chapter, Genesis, is in harmony with modern science. You might as well ask whether the celestial chronometer chronometer is in keeping with the timepiece in Greenwich. What is the celestial chronometer that he's talking about? Anybody have any idea? Okay. Talk about the sun. Celestial chronometer. And when he's talking about a timepiece in Greenwich, he's, uh, I think he's back in England, and I think it's probably in the past century, or at least early on, where that was the world clock. That you might as well ask the sun to stay in line with that clock, because that clock we go by, so make sure you stay in line. That's backwards, okay? Let's go on. 
Rather, it must be the part of scientists to bring their declarations in according with the teachings of Genesis 1, if they are to receive the respect of the children of God. He said, The faith of the Christian rests not in the wisdom of man, nor does it stand any need of buttressing from scientific savants. The faith of the Christian rests upon the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture, and we need nothing more. Too often have Christian apologists deserted their proper ground. For instance, one of the agent tablets of Assyria is deciphered, and then it is triumphantly announced that some statements found in the historical portions of the Old Testament have been confirmed. But that is only a turning of things upside down again. The word of God needs no confirming. If the writing upon a Syrian tablet agrees with what is recorded in scripture, that confirms the historical accuracy of the tablet. If the tablet disagrees, that it proved positive that the Assyrian writer was at fault. In like manner, if the teachings of science square with scripture, that goes to show that the former are correct. If they conflict, that proves the postulates of science are false. The man of the world and the pseudoscientists may sneer at our logic, but that only demonstrates the truth of God's word which declares, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So the scripture is what we go by. And that is true for archaeology, is true for, true for paleontology, geology, astronomy, psychology, and whatever other ology you want to put in there. The scripture is not confirmed by those studies. But the scientific disciplines are judged by the scripture. So I want to say thanks, Eldon, even though he's not here. Why don't we just pause for a word of prayer before we go on. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which is given to us, which is trustworthy and true. And Lord, it is, it is up to us, Lord, whether we will believe you and that we will trust it. And Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, what you have shown to us this morning. Lord, the true the true um, proof of our belief is when we actually move forward and obey. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to do all that this morning. Do also pray, Lord, you would be with us in this part of the service. Help us, Lord, to understand you, your word, and your, your ways. Pray you be with each one of us to help us keep us an alert mind, and to guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I uh, think something was said this morning about the grace, not not the grace, whatever it was, not being irked at each other. we got to be out of here by 12 o'clock, you know. Uh, Brian didn't know that, so he was making it go longer, but I wasn't irked at him. Thank you, Brother Brian. <laughs> but we... Um, we do need to be out. 
we're going to move forward with this, the confession of faith. If you have it, you can turn to um, number 11, which is about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, actually. And it says here, at the beginning here, we believe and confess that the kingdom of God or Christ is a spiritual kingdom and stands in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ taught the standard, his standard of holiness for his kingdom. And it says, and as citizens of his kingdom, we believe and confess that. I don't know if mine has a typo or not. It's not the same here. As kingdoms of the kingdom of Christ, we confess that we don't involve ourselves in earthly governments and political parties. Okay, I must have a, I have a electronic version on my computer and it's different than the one in here. It's not in the same order. But, um, let's read it here. Unless, I guess I'm assuming this is the same order as yours. This is the latest one. Okay. Our king calls us to be committed to the interests of his kingdom. And Jesus Christ calls for our allegiance above all else. He is king of kings. We do not involve ourselves in earthly governments and political parties. We do not participate in wars, but rather love our enemies. We do not wear any military uniform or salute any flag because because our kingdom knows no flag, uniform, or political boundaries. And I think we'll stop right there at this point. Before we get into the specifics, which is down the line, I think it's good for us to stand back and take an overview first. Not just an overview of what we believe, but also look at some alternative views that are promote it today. In other words, we can learn best many times by contrast. When I taught the youth these topics, I tried to teach them several alternative views, why we reject them and why we embrace the view that we have. It gets perspective. Like Don Feener, as you, uh, who were there as homeschoolers, when he taught us that evening, he said, I want you to think. And I want you to think this morning. I don't want to pull anyone, wool over anyone's eyes. I, I don't want to do, as Apostle Paul said, handle the word of God deceitfully. Nor do I want to be as one of those Six blind men of Indostan that went to look at the elephant and they all they saw was one part of it. I want to see the, I want to get the bigger picture. And so today we will only look at the first sentence. It says, we believe and confess that the kingdom of God or Christ is a spiritual kingdom and stands in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. Now that statement just stands there. There's no scripture behind it. It's just assumed that that's true. That's what we believe. 
We believe. And then it goes on to the specific. Since we believe this, this is why we do these things. But do you believe that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom and stands in contrast to the kingdoms of this world? If you believe that, what does that mean? What is Christ's kingdom and what is the kingdoms of this world? And I'm going to read a few verses about the kingdom of God just to get us a little bit of an idea of what the kingdom of Christ is. And you don't have to turn here. In Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2, says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 5, 3, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. John chapter 3 and verse 3, a very familiar verse. Jesus answered and said unto him, Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in Mark in chapter 1 and 14 and 15, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. This phrase, the time is fulfilled, is the phrase we will mainly focus on today. And the title of the message is Flat Bible or Progressive Grace. The kingdoms of the world... What is that? What is being contrasted to the spiritual kingdom that we're talking about in Christ here? What is being contrasted? Are the kingdoms of the world inherently evil? Are they Satan's kingdom? Should they be together or should they be separate? What we're dealing here, what this confession is actually saying is, is actually talking about the church and the state. That's really what it's talking about. If you've got the kingdoms of this world and you have the kingdom of Christ, you have the church and you have the state. That's really what we're going to talk about this morning. And, and if you would, uh, if you would uh, take that as, um, the spiritual kingdom and stands in contrast to the kingdoms of this world and you go down there and and you go to some specifics that we don't do, it's because the 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 mandates of the state and the mission of the church don't blend very well. Well someone might say, well in Old Testament times they did. In Old Testament times there were godly men who were kings. I, some of you remember John, I think it's John R. Martin that spoke to our youth many years ago about non-resistance. And he, as a, as a, as a teenager, 18 or 19 years old, he went before a, uh, a military board as a CO. And he had to explain to them why he is obj- obj- conscientiously objected to going to war. And the man on the board, 
there was probably a panel of them. They knew the Bible better than this young man did. And he said, well, David, the man after God's own heart, was a military man. Don't you want to be like David? Don't you want to be like David? Well, yeah. Yeah, I do. Well, David was a military man. He, he had went to battle. What would you say, young men? Some would say that to you. Do we have time? <laughs> Anybody want to answer? What would you say? Any young men? Yes. Oh, yeah, you're young enough. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> That's true. But he was still a man after God's own heart. So it had a lot going for him. But that, that's a good point. That one came up at home. <laughs> yes? That's exactly what... that. You're right. That's exactly what John told him. The New Testament is different. That's right. And that is right. So the question comes, why don't we participate in political rallies? Why don't we involve ourselves in the political parties? Why don't we encourage voting or running for office? Why don't we have police men and women in our congregation? Or soldiers? Are they evil? What about mayors, governors? Can you be one as part of the kingdom of Christ? Our confession says no. That's a, that's a, that's a bold statement, isn't it? The kingdom of this world stand in contrast to the kingdoms of Christ. What we call the state and the church, they are separate. That's what the two kingdoms are. And that brings up a very basic question. Why are they separate today? And now you gave an answer, but let's go broader. Let's go, let's go, let's do some thinking here. Why are they separate today? They used to not be. Clearly they were not in the Old Testament. One night, about a week ago, I couldn't sleep. So I did what all you do when you can't sleep. I got up and read my old sermon notes. I mean, that's what you all do, right? <laughs> I have kept practically every sermon and children's lesson that I ever had since I started. And I found, I knew I had one back there somewhere about I had taught about the kingdom of God. And I found it a little over 15 years ago, back in the last century. I found one on this topic. Now, before I go on to there, I would say, reading your old sermon, you've never had this experience. It's really a wonderful experience. Let me just tell you my experience. It is both humiliating and inspiring, okay? It's humiliating because I look at those old notes and say, did I actually say that or did I actually believe that? That was, that was pretty self-righteous. And then there's the other side that says, wow, I wish I remembered my own sermons. 
So it goes both ways. So you ever you ever want a good experience, go ahead and do that, brothers. <laughs> but anyhow, I found uh, a message that I had actually had on a Wednesday evening about 15 years ago back at the uh, old Seventh-day Adventist. It was a topic about how history moved forward from a combined church and state and a move to become separate. Back then, the issue was much more pertinent to us as a church and also personally than it is, I think it is today. Someone from our congregation and two from the other congregation had left the uh, recently rejected the very idea that church and state are to be separate. They had done it not too long before that. In fact, they said that the two are most definitely supposed to be together. And in changing their belief from Anabaptist to Reformed, they blended well in the political um, spirit of the age also. Back in the last century, the um, Christians were gaining... Christians, you know, Christian in quote at least, were gaining in government. People like Chuck Colson and James D. Kennedy, Chuck Colson was a Catholic, James D. Kennedy was a Presbyterian, and many other Christian leaders were publicly calling Christians to do their God-given duty, get in the political arena, vote, give money, to candidates, organize support groups, run for office, the whole glamour. It was the spirit of the age 15 years ago, 20 years ago. James Kennedy quoted C.S. Lewis. He said, the most significant political action that any Christian can take is to convert his neighbor. Winning a soul to the Lord was the most political thing you could do because now that new Christian would help the millions of other Christians to vote Christian leaders into office. We will win the culture war by winning souls. In the last several years before he died, James Kennedy said that we were nearing the critical mass needed to take over America. He said the Christians in America are... He was, he had dates, and he had a chart. He said we was 44%. Now, this year it's 45%. It's 46%. It's 48%. He said we almost had the critical mass to need it to get this country back to a Christian, become a Christian nation like the founding fathers intended it to be. He died in 2007. The Reverend Jerry Falwell used to say that the mission of the church is threefold. What will your threefold mission of the church be? Get people saved, baptized, and registered to vote. And Kennedy would add, and get them trained in political activism. Then there was Y2K. Anybody remember Y2K? The coming mass computer crash that's going to change life as it is. I mean, it's going to be completely different. The um, All the mainline, mainframe com- computers are going to crash. 
electricity is going to fail, the transportation network is going to, and uh, it'll take about two days for the people in New York City to get out to this area of the country. That's, that's what was going to be mass confusion. There were Christians who were poised to take over the government during that area of mass confusion. They were ready to take over. That was that was planned. It never happened. Now that view seems sort of odd today, doesn't it? Today, 15 years later, we can any casual observer can see that the culture has made a major shift away from anything that would be called authentic Christianity. It has shifted in 15 years, 20 years time, 15 years time, it was from, back then, people were saying, by this time, we will be a Christian nation. And it has completely flipped around, whereas it's going the other way faster than it ever came, was going the other way. But their view was that a Christian nation this nation would be a Christian, and a Christian nation would spread its influence on the rest of the world. And eventually the whole world would be under Christian rule, with Christian laws, and then Jesus would come back and sort of mop up the whole organization. People like Myron Weaver knows what I'm talking about, and Dave Esch is in here this morning. But some of, some of you went through all this. And I know this belief by heart because I sat under its teaching for several years and three of my co-workers were persuaded of it. But this morning, we have a confession that says, we believe and confess the kingdom of God or Christ is a spiritual kingdom and it stands in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world are United States, Canada, Israel, Saudi Arabia, China, and on and on. Those are the kingdoms of this world. And they stand in contrast to the kingdom of Christ, in which Christians have their first allegiance to. Someone might well say, why are the two to be separate and not together? They used to be together. Just look at Israel in the Old Testament. And they're right. They were together. Completely together. And for us to say that they are separate today, we need to demonstrate that the church and state that used to be together, but now they are to be apart. How did that happen? Put a little bit of meat on what Rex said. I had a a book, I have it down there, The Anatomy of a Hybrid. It's a study in church state relationship by Leonard Verduum, he explores in depth in that book how basically all pre-Christian societies had religion and the state combined in one, including Israel. But God began a process of moving his people away from that from that model, to prepare them for the new covenant. In the new covenant, in the early church, the two were separate. Then comes Constantine and Augustine, and they brought the two back together. 
Now you have the Christian church and state together. And then you come to the Reformation, and you have the reforming going on, and you have two groups of reformers. One who keeps the church and state together, and one who separates them. And we heard some about that on Wednesday night. The Catholic Church returned to the pre-Christian model of combined church and state. And the reformers, let's say this, the major conflict, the flashpoint with the reformers was believers' baptism. But the reason adult baptism was such a flashpoint was because it challenged the premise of the state-church-religion combined. It challenged that very concept. The fact that you would choose to join, well, we'll get there later. To have a voluntary membership of people in a church within a society that does not ascribe to that would destroy our society, they said. We have to have everyone united together, both civilly and religiously. You know, if you just look at the Soviet Union, what did the Soviet Union want to do when communism started? Everybody had to ascribe to the party ideals. There was no room given for dissent. A lot of Christians were not persecuted because they believed in God. They were persecuted because they would not go along with communist atheism. And that was a threat to their system and they took care of that. And actually, the the, the reformers like Martin Luther and Swingley and Calvin, in their their system, they were more like the Muslim countries today than they are like the Christian countries as uh, Christ, uh, or the free society as we know it. Anyway, I say that God moved in history, and uh, in stages He brought the two apart. Now we don't have nearly enough of time to be real thorough in our study, so I'm going to take this position. I'm going to talk now and you ask questions later. That's the position I have to take. Leonard, in the book, begins with the assertion that all pre-Christian societies have a single religion at heart. They have a state-endorsed religion at heart that must be adhered to to be a part of the state. And there's some examples given. A good example is in Daniel chapter 3, where... Uh, you, you children know this, that there's a statue set up in Babylon. The king set it up. The king, there's a civil authority, the state authority, set up a statue. And what did everybody have to do? Everybody, it was a real organized ritual. It was planned. Everybody got together. And at a certain time when the music starts, everybody bows. That is a state religion. It's a pre-Christian society and that is typical of any society way back then. You can go to the uh, time when Jonah went to Nineveh and preached his ultimatum 
And what was the response? The king put out a decree and he said, everybody got to respond with contrition. The king was commanding religiosity from everybody. It's the same way as you go in, in, in many, many tribal situations. And um, uh, Indian tribes, uh, African tribes, you were born in a tribe by virtue of your birth. By virtue of birth, you were automatically into that whole civil and religious environment. It was all together. It was seamless. The civil and religious life flowed in one seamless procession. You know, you don't have to have to think real far until you can actually think. You know what? I think I know some conservative Mennonites or Amish that might be that way. <laughs> Born into a tribe, you adopt the culture. Everything is done in one seamless thing. It, 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 it's a strong culture that actually has some same some same of the uh, same. Uh, um, Example, not example, I can't think of the word right, but it's similar. Okay, let's go back to Abraham. Abraham was a patriarch. Now, what was he? As a patriarch of his clan, he was the leader both of the civil and the religious aspects of his, who he had over. When he, he made sacrifices, and then he also, when uh, when uh, Lot needed some help, he organized that army, and he took the civil part. He he was it was all together. It was not separate as far as church and state. If we think about it, so he was both king and priest of his tribe, and that was right. Even though he was chosen by God, that was right. Let's go forward now to Exodus. At Mount Sinai, God details how people were to function. And here we begin to first see God moving and separating the two offices. Before that, we pretty well see that the king and the priest were one. Out in the giving of the law, we've had the beginning of the Levitical priesthood. And we have a beginning of the, uh, the leaders of tens and th- hundreds and thousands. And then you have someone who leads, like, like uh, Joshua was the uh, military leader and, uh, and the leader in general. But then we have the priesthood. And so now we see a distinction between the office of the priest and the office of the ruler. It's only beginning here. Because in the time of the judges, the judge could both be the one doing both. But by the time you came to the time of the kings, Samuel, not Samuel, Saul, the first king, was not allowed to make that sacrifice that Samuel had to make. Do you remember how Saul had his downfall? Um, Saul was out in the, out and they were going to fight this and they were waiting for Samuel to come and make an offering. Samuel didn't come and he didn't come and he didn't come. And so Saul said, I forced myself, and he did the sacrifice. He was not allowed to do that. Now we have 
a distinction between the priest and the king. And it's very clear. It was a God-ordained distinction. Now, the society still went worked together. This church and state are still together here. But we see it moving in a certain direction. In a... I said the division of responsibilities was complete by the time the kings came to the scene. So, what we have here, and this is what I want to see, is that there is a progression. We can have a flat Bible, or we can have a progressive grace. There's movement happening. Back before the kings, you had Abraham, and you had the judges and all those, and the, the priest and the king could be the same person. Now, no longer can it be the same person, but you still had all together as far as the church and state. So we're moving. God's grace is progressing and moving on. It's changing its mode of operation, if you will. Then, some more things began to develop. Here you have a nation of Israel. They are the state. They are God's people. But within this nation, you have what? Well, let's, let's think of something that Elijah said. He said, I am the only one left. And God said, no, I have, there are 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Here we see a national scene. And within that national scene, we see the true people of God. So they have uh, two consecutive circles, two concentric circles. We could draw them on the board here, but you have a small circle and you have a big circle. Here are the people of God, and here you have the society. But they're all the people of God. But these people do not know God. And so you have a civil and a religious society, but you have only a percentage, only a remnant that know God. Now, that is still a major feature of a flat Bible theology in that... um, and you go back to the Catholic view of the church. They said this geographical area is the, it's, it's the people of God. You know, we're, we control this area. Now, within it, there's only certain people who really do know God. Well, actually, they didn't say that. The uh, Reformers said that more. The Catholic Church was so far from the truth, I don't even think they said it anymore. But did you ever hear the uh, phrase today, the visible church and the invisible church. Who ever heard that phrase? Some? Okay. That's sort of the idea. Uh, in, in, in big churches where you have laxity and discipline, you have the visible church. It's the people who come to church. Well, within that, there are the real church, the invisible church. You can't see for sure who they are. Everybody's coming to church, but only certain people really know God, and only God really knows who they are. 
So we'll just let everybody come to church and God will sort it out. That comes from that idea and it's come from a flat Bible theology. Now Israel, as time went on, God's chosen people, they were the society, they had their own king. What happened next in Israel? They lost their state. Heathen nations came over. Nebuchadnezzar came first. And so Israel was in a place was very awkward for them. For now they had they were the people of God. They still had their the law of God, but they no longer had their state. And they're in an in a in an awkward place. They're in a new situation. They could retain their religious practices and beliefs, but they could not rule themselves in the civil area. In the state, they couldn't, they didn't have control of their own destiny there. And the Maccabee Wars, in between the In Testament period, was mainly a result between the religious order and the civil order that was being imposed on them by other governments. By the time By the time Christ was born, that, that new paradigm was clearly in place. The Jews were not ruling themselves, but they were able to have their own religion. It was not like it was the old. No longer did they have a church and state thing. Now the Romans had their church and state thing, but the Jews didn't anymore. God was moving them on. The Romans had the civil authority. The Jews could still practice their religion. They had their diet. They had their feast day. They had their laws and all the other things. Now, there's one other thing that happened in this intertestament period, and that was the arise of the synagogue. And in the intertestament period especially, in Israel, you had not just Israelis living there. You had government authorities. You had other peoples. You had the culture was becoming more mixed. Okay? No longer did you have a nation where everybody in that nation was pretty well Israel. A new, a new dimension pretty well. Now, and those people were not there by birth. They came in by choice. If not something you've just born into. So something is changing here. Something is new. Now, what do you think they did to bring those proselytes into the synagogue? If you were born in, as an Israel, if you were a boy, you were circumcised. That was the mark that you were one of God's chosen. Now, for those who came into the synagogue, what do you think they used? Does anybody have any idea? They used baptism. Baptism became used during this intertestament period as, I choose, I accept the Jehovah God that you worship. I become your disciple. I become a disciple and a follower of Jehovah God. And... As a sign of that, there was baptism. That's interesting. 
But that was new. Baptism symbolized entering into something voluntarily, by choice, and not something you were simply born into. Okay, let's fast forward to the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. Why did Jesus need a forerunner? Well, probably several reasons, but one of them is it needed to be a major change of format. John continued with the tradition of proselytizing, I'm sorry, baptizing uh, people who wanted to enter into something with choice. He said, repent. And those who repented, he baptized. It's as if he went into the synagogue and observed two members. You know, he could do that today probably. He went into the synagogue and he observed two kinds of people there. He observed the people who were there because that's who they were. That's who they were. They were born into it. This is my faith. This is me. And he saw the people who saw something and had some kind of interest and they entered into it by choice. And there was something different about those people. Well, you choosing something rather than just growing into it or just accepting it because your family did. And he took that. And he preached, and he said, you need to bring fruits of repentance. I don't just want you coming and wanting something. I want to see some fruits. And he also did something else. He said, where you were born in doesn't matter. God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. We are done with the old way of doing things, the people of God. The people of God are not those that are born after the lineage of Abraham. The people of God are those who actually repent. Only those who are willing to commit and yield to God in a real discernible way. And I'll read part of that, I don't know if you want to turn to it or not, it's a number of verses, Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 to 9, then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Wow! No special privilege anymore. There's going to be a new community. A community of choice. John pioneered this community of choice. I think that's probably one of the major reasons he had to come as a forerunner. There was a major shift happening here. It's a matter of a people of God held together by a decision making. With John begins a people of God not coextensive with an already existing togetherness. John started a new thing. There's no pre-existing togetherness. 
But this, he took the concept of the church. He developed, or out of him evolved the concept of the church, that there is a togetherness that doesn't come from a prior experience, but it comes together around something else. Now, proselytes were converted people, and John, in in preaching, repentance was basically doing the same thing, requiring a conversion before baptism. Not in the sense of Pentecost, after Pentecost and the Spirit coming, but there was a conversion of a type that was happening here, and he required it. John had followers in which a peculiar and distinguishing lifestyle comes to expression as a necessary feature for all who would belong. It was the fruits worthy of repentance. A change of heart will always express itself in a change of life. This has always been a feature of authentic Christianity, though it has often been abandoned in times that followed. Now, Jesus continued in a similar pattern as his forerunner. He, he started this preaching, repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he didn't seem to mind very much if a large number of his followers just left him. He didn't have a problem with followers leaving him that didn't agree with him. He didn't seem to have any sentimental value on that enormous, magnificent temple at Jerusalem. He had no sentimental value attached to that. Jesus was a king, but he had no no place to set up a king kingdom on earth, such as a geographical one or a political kingdom. Not only that, but he began to teach things that would conflict with and make it nigh impossible to start an earthly kingdom or to be a part of it. He said, no oaths, don't swear, don't do any oaths. Well, that's a major part of any political kingdom. That's how you extract the truth from people, right? He said to love your enemies. How can you do that in warfare? He said not to resist evil, but to pray and to bless those who treat you badly. He said those who speak evil of you, don't hate them or get revenge or try to get revenge. And then he led by example as he was taken by the Jews and suffered a, suffered a mock trial by the Romans. Now, some of the exchange between Pilate and Jesus is pretty revealing. Pilate opens his case and turn that, you can turn with me if you would there to John 18, this will be the last passage here. John chapter 18, where Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate opens the case by saying, Are you the king of the Jews? See if I can find it here. Art thou the king of the Jews? And if we just go down to um, verse 36, Jesus 
said, answered, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, well, art thou a king then? Well, let me back up a little bit. He asked Jesus a question, are you the king of the Jews? Why didn't Jesus just say yes or no? Well, let me ask you a question, and I want you to answer yes or no. Did you stop beating your wife? You want to answer yes? Want to answer no? You can't answer that with a yes or no. Each implies the wrong thing. When Jesus asked the question, are you a king of the Jews? Jesus could not say yes or no because Pilate would get the wrong answer because Pilate's mind was thinking of kings. He is a king, but not the way you're thinking. Pilate is predisposed to thinking of kingship, so his answer is yes, but. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what he said. That's why he had to say that. He said, if my kingdom were this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Well, Pilate then said, well, are you a king then? Oh, you are a king. Are you? I don't think Pilate's getting it yet, is he? Jesus answered, said, Thou sayest I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause I came into the world. That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And of course, Pilate then says those famous words. Well, what is truth? <laughs> he didn't get it. He didn't get it. But here we have Jesus' kingship. And the world's kingdoms contrasted in one verse. Jesus is a king, but he's not an earthly king. What is he king over? What is he the president over? Who is he in charge of? Well, he says, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. It's not a geographical area. It's not a political kingdom. It's not whatever you think of our earthly kingdom. It's not that. It's, it's those of all nations and kindreds and tongues that will hear his voice. That's the kingdom that Jesus is a king of. So how did we progress from a Jewish style, church, state, to a complete separation of the two? There's a few other verses I'd like to look at that would help clarify that. I'll just read them. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, where Jesus, where Paul is talking about it, he said, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, there is neither barbarian, there is neither Scythian, there is neither a bond, there is free, but Christ 
is all and in all. So you're in the church of God. Political boundaries mean nothing. If you're under the kingship of Christ, political boundaries are zero. Romans and uh, Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So when we talk about this morning, we believe and confess that the kingdom of God or Christ is a spiritual kingdom and stands in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. It's because Christ is that spiritual king in heaven of all the people who will listen to his voice. And the reason, I, I don't know, I don't know, I didn't talk to Rick, but the, it is just assumed that that is the case, and so therefore then we go to the specifics that we have early on, that we don't go to war, that we, a uh, number of things there I can't think right now. But flat Bible theology would insist that the governments are to be run by Christians, ultimately. And until that happens, we must influence the political process in any and every way we can. That paradigm is still Old Testament paradigm. Progressive grace asserts that God has moved away from that model, and it's a spiritual and a worldwide one. There is a new and living way. No longer do we go to Jerusalem, nor to that mountain to worship God. God seeks people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, in Jesus' time, there were zealots. Zealots were people, were Jewish people who wanted to overthrow the Romans so that Israel could get back to its pre-captivity rule. That, that was what they thought God wanted them to do. But God was moving exactly the opposite way. The zealots wanted to go back to the times of David, the times of Solomon. Jesus was going exactly the opposite way with his. It's a voluntary, it's worldwide. Now he, he said, he was very clear. He said the government is not demonic. Well, most are not. I think some of them have demonic people in them. I think of ISIS and some other horrible, horrible, horrible governments. But in general, Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but give to God the things that are God's. The reformers were wrong in their insistence of baptizing babies into the state. They were wrong. And those who today try to put us on a guilt trip because we don't get involved politically, don't get involved in the political process, are just as wrong. God is not there. It's not wrong to the same extent as what the reformers were because of what they did, but 
it's just as wrong in their understanding of Jesus' king, kingdomship. A little over a week ago, we went to see a documentary film by National Geographic about Jerusalem. And uh, it was completely a secular. But it was about Jerusalem and how the three... You know, Jerusalem was destroyed, they think, about 40 times. Destroyed and rebuilt. Destroyed and rebuilt. They think they have 40 times. And today, it's a flashpoint because you have Jews and you have Muslims and you have Christians. And this, all want this ground. This is so important. Now, I don't know, uh, we have different views here of what's going to happen in the future. But Jesus said it's not important where you worship. The location, the geographical place, that mountain, that city. Forget it. That's not the issue at all. It's important how and why you worship. And so, I'm not as sympathetic as some people are to the Jewish Jerusalem. So, anyhow, the hybrid, the early church, the early church had a, had a clear, had a clear understanding of the separation between the two. They, they would not go into the army. They would not do a number of things with the government. But then the hybrid developed. And then it's been this back and forth ever since, which is the proper, proper way. Okay, well, anyhow, I don't know if I've made it clear or not. Flat Bible or progressive grace. I believe that God has progressed, that grace has changed, that God's method, his, his, uh, his will for his people has changed. The major change came in the old covenant and the new. But even as you look back, you can see in history where it goes step by step and moving forward. And then it comes to John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that's my best attempt in explaining the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of Christ. Why don't we just stand for a word of prayer? Lord, we are so grateful to you, Lord, for your word. And we also thank you, Lord, for uh, your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that we can with confidence come to you. You said you do not cast us out, and you have also given us direction. Lord, this morning as I think of this message, I pray, Lord, you would solidify it each and of our hearts, and I pray, Lord, that the conversation may continue after the message, that we can clarify the, the uh, dark spots and the issues that may not be clear yet. But, Lord, we just give that to you, and pray, Lord, that you would guide us as your people, make us passionate in your kingdom and for your purposes. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here you seated.